Hello, Ice Coffee listeners. I'm holed up in the wheelhouse of the Maureen M, which is tied up alongside its finger of the wharf at Queenscliff, partly because I'm not in Antarctica this season because of COVID-19, and because I told a guest to go fuck himself and pretty much got drummed out of quark, but also because the weather is shit. So while I'm happy to have work at sea again, I'm gutted that we're not going to sea today, because Southern Port Phillip is all fucked up. But, I digress. But, you already knew that about me. I'm here to chant out episode Tumpty Tum about the two Ronnies. The Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition comprised a mix of Antarctic veterans and enthusiastic first-timers. It returned to an established base with first-rate war surplus aircraft and a capable ship. It's surprising, then, that the expedition achieved as little as it did. In coming episodes, I'll try to map why. Finn Ronnie was a veteran of Little America too when his nascent plans for a dog sled journey surveying unknown Antarctic coasts got incorporated into the Burdian juggernaut that became the USASA. As the Second World War drew to its conclusion, Finn Ronnie felt the time right for his own Antarctic star to shine. He disdained large expeditions as being run from Washington DC, and sought to resurrect his vision for a lean, efficient expedition, with its leadership framework entirely on the ground in the south. Post-war demobilisation saw large numbers of fit, militarily trained men returning to the USA and at a loss for a focus for their energy. Antarctic adventure fired many an imagination among that demographic and Ronnie figured he could field the expedition for as little as $50,000 if the bulk of the expedition team comprised volunteers. Finn Ronnie had married Edith Maslin, who always asked to be called Jackie, an employee at the State Department in 1941. She worked hard alongside Finn to help realise his Antarctic ambitions, and besides bolstering his energy when his optimism flagged in the face of the seemingly insurmountable workloads, she also helped spark inspiration in circumventing the bureaucratic and Burdian roadblocks thrown in the expedition's path. It's unlikely the expedition this narrative addresses would have gotten off the ground without her unpaid service to Finn's goals and she warrants citation as the first woman to play such a significant part in the preparations for an Antarctic foray. As was mentioned in episode 106, she'll play a significant role in the expedition well beyond its preparation, but more on that anon. The pair operated from home, without an office or a car, keeping the back end of operations lean. The American Geographical Society eventually made office space available for the expedition administration, but for the most part, Finn and Jackie Ronnie stored information in their heads and their notebooks as they gradually problem-solved their way to a departure southward. With a constant refrain of, we must hurry, 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 Finn Ronnie began casting about for financial and practical support for a return to Antarctica before the war ended highlighting the geographic and geological treasure trove, waiting for someone to come along and pick up where the USASA left off. Ronnie outlined the goals of his expedition as follows. To determine the coastline of the western shore of the Weddell Sea. To determine the direction and extent of the Palmerland mountain range. 
to carry out extensive mapping operations and from these to determine whether the Palmerland Mountains extended to the Queen Maud Mountain Range or the Marie Birdland Range or neither and whether or not the Weddell Sea joins the Ross Sea and divides the continent into two parts a long-standing question that many people thought that they'd already solved. Ronnie hoped to incorporate geology, meteorology, seismology, tidal data, cosmic ray studies, atmospheric refraction studies, solar radiation measurements, and magnetometry into the program. Finn Ronnie approached John Wright, director of the American Geographical Society, receiving the AGS Council's endorsement in October 1945. While Ronnie felt his war service in the Navy's Bureau of Ships and the connections he made therein stood him in good stead to borrow the desired 183-foot wooden-hulled U.S. Navy rescue tug Alpha Tango Alpha 215 by asking from the bottom up, operating under the AGS Aegis offered an opportunity to ask for the ship from the top down, and Ronnie asked John Wright to ask James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy, for the loan on Ronnie's behalf. Eager to help, Forrestal couldn't give the go-ahead because the Navy isn't supposed to loan materials to individuals. This early and big problem Ronnie solved by incorporating the American Antarctic Association, bringing Isaiah Bowman, Sir Hubert Wilkins, Lawrence M. Gould, Bernd Balkan, all familiar Ice Coffee podcast alumni, and State Department geographer Samuel Boggs and Wolfgang Lewis Gottfried Jörg, usually referred to as W.L.G. Georg, Chief Archivist of the Cartographic Records Branch of the Department of Archives, and generally regarded as one of the U.S. greatest authorities on polar geography, in spite of never travelling to high latitudes, into its committee. Besides circumventing the problem of the naval inability to loan a ship to an individual, this team gave a lot of credibility to the AAA but some of the committee members already bore the ire of Richard Bird and Bird's acolytes, and by association, some of its members acquired, newly developed, lab-tested Birdian ire. Finn Ronnie didn't consult with Bird about his plans, and while this left him free to plan and organise without the meddlesome direct interference of his former leader, it led to indirect meddlesome interference from his former leader. Bird's legacy as the self-styled Mayor of Antarctica was always going to prove troublesome to anyone who sought to head south without the rear admiral's sanction and involvement, but to have one of his former underlings looking to trench of what he perceived as his personal patch without seeking his counsel rankled Dick Bird, because he was a selfish and petulant Dick Bird. Lyle Rose, writing in Explorer, The Life of Richard E. Bird, cites the rear admiral as supporting Ronnie's efforts to garner government funding on three occasions but later correspondence between Byrd and AAA expedition members, as passed along to Ronnie, indicate significant acrimony and the sort of hurt-fawn mulings Byrd always played to when he felt someone didn't show him, or his legacy, sufficient respect. A doubt consulting Richard Byrd early and often, either for his blessing or his support, would have yielded anything other than direct meddling anyway, so I don't fault Ronnie his keeping clear of the clearly increasingly erratic Mayor of Antarctica, in the early stages of his preparations. Newspaper interest in polar projects waned between the late 1920s and the mid-1940s. With all the banner firsts firsted and overshadowed by the recent war, 
The Hearst papers only agreed to pay $5,000 for the expedition's stories, and that was post hoc. No cash up front, as they'd afforded Wilkins in his heyday. The New York Times, Bird's former cash cow, weren't putting their hand in their pocket until Ronnie held the bulk of the funding, the budget by this point blown out to $150,000, in hand. The North American Newspaper Alliance, a syndicate of 50 non-Hearst papers, agreed to pay for syndicated coverage of the expedition, calling for regular copy during the preparation phase, and more sent out of Antarctica by Radio Telegraph. Jackie Ronnie, a history graduate at George Washington University, took on the role of preparing and submitting the articles during the expedition build-up. With 75,000 US dollars cobbled together from donors and an additional 25,000 from press interests, Finn Ronnie put the hard word on the American Philosophical Society for an additional 45,000 US dollars to get the expedition over the financial line, offering to run any high latitudes research programs the society cared to nominate in return. The APS demurred, leading Ronnie to suspect Bird was stymieing his efforts from above by dint of his influence among US power players. Whether or not Bird was pulling out all of the Machiavellian stops his past white ant efforts demonstrated him as capable of, scruples-free bastard that he was, that Ronnie's project operated independently of the person most Americans of the day associated with Antarctica did its own bit to make fundraising that much harder. Quoting from Jenny Darlington's book, in which she quotes Finn Ronnie, quote, They ask me if I am going with Bird. I tell them no. I am taking my own expedition. They shake their heads and will not give me any money. He cajoled some contracts to test equipment under extreme conditions for the United States Army Air Force. The Air Force didn't become its own entity until 1947. The funds gradually accumulated towards critical mass. The United States Postal Service swore Finn Ronnie in as a postmaster on the quiet the role adding government administrative cachet to the expedition, but no dollars. In assembling his team, Finn Ronnie picked the eyes out of the USASA competence pool, or I should say, those parts of the USASA competence pool he got along with. Recall that his prickly mode and dog-killing mean led to a number of people not getting along with the East-based 2IC, and Ronnie's distrust of Bird further excluded a number of the Rear Admiral's close confidants and colleagues. He selected ornithologist Dr. Carl Eklund, Ronnie's trail companion from the epic USASA foray along the western side of the Antarctic Peninsula, as chief scientist. The Smithsonian Institute agreed to continue paying Dr. Eklund's salary for the expedition duration, expecting a new tranche of Antarctic specimens on his return from the south. Ike Schlossbach, the Navy hardcase who commanded submarines in the Mediterranean during the First World War, led the first US Navy carrier-borne dive bomber squadron and who served with distinction at Henderson Field on Guadalcanal during the Second World War, already served on five polar expeditions, among them Sir Hubert Wilkins' submarine efforts in the Arctic, when word reached him about Finn Ronnie's new project. He packed his sea bag and joined as second in command and as master of the expedition's naval rescue tug. You don't fly dive bombers off and back onto ships and navigate submarines without being a pretty cool operator, and Schlossbach's ability to stand apart from the emotional mean of a situation 
and to liaise between acrimonious parties and operate in frigid social settings as much as frigid weather, made his appointment a boon to the expedition, as you'll hear more about later. With his naval qualifications not recognised in civilian maritime jurisdiction, Ike spent a month at a merchant marine academy in New York, learning to suck eggs for the civilian certifications necessary for him to command a naval vessel engaged in a civilian project. Sig Gutenko, pemmican connoisseur and Navy Chief Commissary Steward, was recovering from wounds received when a Japanese torpedo hit the ship he served on in the Pacific, when the invitation south came his way. Gutenko served at West Base with Ike Schlossbach during the USASAE, and relished the opportunity to return to Antarctica. He threw himself into the task of provisioning the expedition, ordering the bulk stores using his Navy steward's contacts and horse trading know-how. Milo Minderbinder stuff. Finn Ronnie sought out Harry Darlington as 3IC and chief pilot. Darlington, the youngest member of the USASAE, and Ronnie didn't spend a lot of time together at East Base, as one or the other spent time on trail, and Finn lived apart from the rest of the base personnel, even when at Stonington Island. Darlington's attendance at the Naval Air School in Pensacola came off a recommendation and some string pulling from Richard Bird. Lacking a college degree, Harry Darlington couldn't have got into the aviators program without Bird's assistance, so it's likely with some Bird-based trepidation that Ronnie asked for Darlington's involvement, but the recently married naval aviator, who spent the war seconded to the Royal Air Force flying American bombers for coastal command squadrons, held solid Antarctic trail experience and drew excellent references as a pilot. I don't know if Ronnie knew that Darlington sought Bird's counsel before accepting the role, but he did, and Bird advised he take the opportunity up, offering some evidence that Lyle Rose was correct in asserting that Bird didn't have any beef with Ronnie's project, at least initially. Darlington agreed to join the expedition on the dual conditions that his dog, Chinook, saved from explosive doom in the East Base evacuation in 1941 and named after Arthur Walden's favourite husky, taken south for the first iteration of Little America, be allowed to accompany him and stay in the staff accommodation as his pet, and that he, Darlington, be in sole charge of aviation operations during the expedition. Every other member of the expedition would make their first voyage to Antarctica. Finn Ronnie hoped to enlist naval personnel in all other roles, expecting them to better take to an orderly life on base and to heed instructions with a habitual alacrity uncommon in groups of civilian volunteers. But he couldn't fill the human resources needs list without going outside the pool of demobbed sailors. First to volunteer, Bob Dodson was son of Harry Dodson, who served as a member of the American Antarctic Association. Vice President of the Harvard Mountaineering Club, he signed on as a geologist and to fulfil the Army contracts to, to, to test equipment under Antarctic conditions. Bob passed news of the expedition along to the President of the Harvard Mountaineering Club, Bill Laterty. Laterty's petition to join coincided with the need to appoint someone to take care of aerial photography. Laterty landed the slot in spite of holding no expertise in the role. Head of Geology at Tufts, Dr. Robert Nichols felt drawn to Antarctica based on his extensive reading of the exploration literature. Geophysicist Andy Thompson 
read about the expedition in the New York Times and put his hand up for service, figuring a year in the South would yield sufficient data for his doctoral thesis at Columbia Graduate School. On learning Thompson came from Uniontown in Pennsylvania, Finn Ronnie suggested that the young man might cajole some coal from his hometown to help keep the expedition costs down. Besides funding his own scientific instruments, Thompson purchased the requested coal out of his own pocket and got well pissed off when Ronnie complained that it was anthracite, the hard, high-energy-density coal, when Ronnie wanted, but never stipulated, the softer, less efficient, but easier to light, bituminous type. The mode of interactions between the ascetic teetotal leader and the voluble and sociable scientist was set early in their year-long acquaintance. Former United States Marine Corps instructor Harry's Clichy Peterson quit a job as a United Airlines radio engineer to sign on as physicist. Merchant mariner and radio operator Lawrence Kelsey joined up and began arranging broadcast licenses, equipment and arrangements for getting expedition met reports and NANA articles through to Radio WEK New Orleans. Expedition XO came on the books after three years as a gunnery officer aboard a destroyer in the Pacific. Nelson McClary received the unenviable task of training non-mariners into shipboard duties in short order. Ike Schlossbach borrowed Chuck Hassage from an LST, landing ship tank, more on which in episodes about the early Anari voyages, moored up in the port of Beaumont to make some repairs to the ship's engine, and Hassage ended up staying on as ship's engineer. Siemens Walter Smith and Ernest Wood rounded out the expedition's complement of competent mariners. Eight professional seafarers on a ship normally crewed by a complement of 62, and only two of those eight carried sufficient experience to stand a watch, in Schlossbach's estimation. Don McLean took time off from writing American Pie and Vincent to fill the expedition's medico slot. Having been asked by Russell Owen journalist during Bird's first Antarctic expedition and whose wife Dr. McLean was treating, if he knew any doctors eager to head to Antarctica. McLean replied, yes, me. Ike Schlossbach, left one-eyed after a degenerative condition saw his right eye deteriorate and eventually require removal, recommended another one-eyed man, James Robertson, as aircraft mechanic. Ike also advised Harry Darlington not to employ any other pilots in order to preclude the jealous power plays he witnessed among the aviation contingent at Little America too, as pilots vied for the privilege of choice flying assignments. But Darlington felt he couldn't manage the entire aviation program on his own, and Ronnie adamantly refused to let Schlossbach get airborne on his own due to his monocular vision. Darlington recruited Captain Jim Lassiter, an Army Air Force pilot who flew cargo over the Himalayas during the war to keep the besieged Chinese regions functioning, and Lieutenant Chuck Adams, both of them taking unpaid leave from their Army Air Force roles to join the expedition Harry Darlington's work at Kelly Field introduced them to, more of which anon. As with Shackleton's quest and Byrd's first Antarctic foray, Finn Ronnie petitioned the Boy Scouts of America to nominate their best possible candidate to join the expedition as a spare pair of hands and prime PR fodder. The Scout Council put forward two candidates, of which Ronnie selected Arthur Owen, who served as a naval signalman in the closing stages of the war, 
and was just starting college when the sudden opportunity arose. Clarence Larry Fisk, a former naval aviator, joined as meteorologist. Harry Darlington managed to secure three airframes, each type suited to a particular expedition role. A Stinson L5 Sentinel 2C Army Liaison would serve as a local scout and reconnaissance mule. A Norduyan, I'm never confident of the pronunciation of this name, a Norduyan Norseman bush plane would carry trail supplies into depot sites. A Beechcraft C-45 Expediter, the military version of the Beech 18 twin-engine transport, would act as photographic survey platform. These aircraft lay in storage at Kelly Field, at the time housing large numbers of war surplus aircraft awaiting scrapping or parting out. Darlington spent much of the lead-up to the expedition's departure at Kelly Field, horse trading to get the materials and expert labour necessary to bring his aircraft up to airworthy status. Both the Stinson and the Norseman required complete reskinning over the fabric areas, the doped linen having deteriorated beyond serviceability during war service and subsequent storage, and converting the Beechcraft to a photographic survey steed. To this end, he acquired a Trimetragon camera system from a Boeing B-29, previously used in reconnaissance over Japan. The system employed three cameras originally Metragon units, hence the name, mounted in a common frame and arranged to provide vertical and oblique, angled to 60 degrees off the nadir, images. Images from each adjacent camera overlapped by 7% and as a whole afforded stereoscopic viewing to aid in the generation of topographic maps. The camera system and the 20,000 feet of film Darlington acquired constituted a major boon to the expedition and he put a great deal of time and effort into fitting the large system into the small space afforded by the Beech-18's fuselage. The Army also provided a bespoke portable darkroom facility designed to operate effectively in Antarctic conditions. The Kelly Field personnel helped with a lot of the airframe preparations, and besides the three aircraft and the camera system, Harry Darlington came away with large numbers of spare parts and the tools required to apply them sparing the Ronnies having to find money for large and indispensable line items. The Kelly Field parting out facility also yielded suitable skis for each aircraft. The Norsemen came factory ready for cold conditions, but the L5 and Beechcraft required winterizing. The heavy grease used to lubricate pulleys and cable runs and guides was carefully cleaned off all control apparatus for replacement with lighter compounds less likely to gum up the works in the cold. Long-range fuel tanks went into the Beechcraft to afford it the legs necessary to make the proposed survey flights. De-icing equipment, unnecessary in the dry air over most of Antarctica, was removed to save weight. With the airframes airworthy and painted in fetching red and orange schemes to show up against the snow if anything untoward should happen, Harry Darlington felt his charges stood the expedition in good stead to efficiently and effectively pick up where the USASA east-based operators left off five years earlier. Meanwhile, the British government sent an embassy representative to petition Finn Ronnie to aim his expedition somewhere other than Stonington Island, 
hoping that news of Patagonian pillaging at East Base might prove sufficient incentive to steer the expedition away from the newly established Falkland Islands Dependency Survey Base E presence. Ronnie would not be swayed from his ambition to reoccupy his former home. The East Base buildings saved his having to purchase and transport building materials, a considerable tranche of funds and, perhaps even more importantly, volume and mass in the already heavily subscribed cargo space of the capable but trim ship. There may also have been a personal element to Ronnie's dedication to the site. John C. Berent, who later served under Ronnie at Ellsworth Station, recounts in Innocence on the Ice that Ronnie claimed East Base was his idea, but that credit went to Bird for its role in the USASAE because of the latter's greater cachet and connections. As with the bubble sextant, which Bird never actually claimed to have invented, he seems to have been content to let other people join dots rather than explicitly claim credit that might later be discredited. And everyone who reported on the USASAE assumed all the fundamental ideas came from the top. Having failed to dissuade him on the vandalism front, the British ambassadorial representative urged that Marguerite Bay boasted too few seals to support two sets of dog teams through the austral winter. Ronnie, short on time and with much left to attend to, wouldn't consider shifting his ambitions. Stonington Island or bust, though and, might be the more apt conjunction. The Chilean government added its protest to the mix, making disgruntled noises about bases on Chilean Antarctic territory. Without US government diplomats on the case, Ronnie settled the Chilean disquiet by applying for and receiving Chilean visas, allowing the entire expedition license to operate in the claimed area, thereby acknowledging the political validity of the Chilean Antarctic Territory. Nearly committed to Operation High Jump, several episodes on which are non, the US Navy pulled its support for Ronnie's project other than the loan of tug Alpha Tango Alpha 215, which the expedition renamed the Port of Beaumont. The Office of Naval Research saw merit in MET reports and cosmic ray measurements from Stonington Island concurrent to those arising from planned naval activity at other sites around Antarctica, but the Navy's commitment to its larger presence precluded any funds going Ronnie's way. And if Rear Admiral Byrd wasn't sticking his oar into matters affecting his former subordinate, it was likely because his meddling influence was superfluous. Certainly Ronnie who did finally contact the Rear Admiral regarding his imminent departure for Antarctica in November 1946, thought Bird was doing everything in his power to prevent the expedition going ahead and reoccupying East Base. In addition to volunteering their time, expertise and labour, many expedition members hit up their families and friends and reached deep into their own pockets to find the funds necessary to keep expedition matters ticking along as the clock ticked down on the time remaining to make a safe and meaningful foray to Stonington Island in the looming Austral summer. Admiral Byrd's the only expedition leader I can presently think of who ever said, you know what, if we hold off a year, we can really get ourselves sorted and ensure we don't leave any T's uncrossed and any I's undotted, or something to that effect. And he rued that decision almost immediately and forever after, as Sir Hubert Wilkins threw his hat into the ring that Byrd thought entirely his own. As with a lot of other expeditions, Finn Ronnie's rush to get moving caused or exacerbated a lot of problems preventing him from getting moving.
Ronnie hoped to get away early as to maximise the time his ship could navigate the waters of Marguerite Bay, expecting the ship to return north as the winter set in. He also hoped to depart from New York to maximise the hoo-ha and press coverage. The difficulties experienced in bringing the expedition together and the longer than expected time it took to get the ship refitted for its new adventure precluded both the early start and the New York hoo-ha. Intending a latest possible departure on the 25th of January 1947, the expedition came together at and departed from the Pennsylvania shipyard docks in the port of Beaumont, Texas, sailing directly to the Panama Canal for a transit down the Chilean coast. The people of Beaumont found the accumulating mass of equipment, dogs and expeditioners exciting and got behind the effort, providing free services and acting as volunteer stevedores when necessary. The Ronnies hosted tours of the ship for interested parties and gave lectures and special events to try to garner funds to cover the last minute bills, accruing as quickly as the expedition materials on the dock. Jackie Ronnie filed Nana stories and advertising agency photographers made the most of the available opportunities to highlight the clothing and equipment provided by sponsors. The expedition Huskies arrived in two main batches, 43 arising from the Chinook Kennels in New Hampshire, former home and business of Arthur Walden, and 10 from Walla Walla, Washington, which is fun to say. One of these 10 died before the expedition departed, but no one thought anything special of this, unfortunately. While the intention to inoculate the dogs existed among those familiar with dogs and dog driving, the hectic pace of preparations and, perhaps, the expense of bringing veterinarians into the mix for large-scale immunology projects left the dogs unvaccinated. Foreshadowing. The Beechcraft arrived by road, the wings separated from the fuselage for easier handling and stowage, while Harry Darlington was still at Kelly Field making last-minute arrangements for the transport of the two other airframes. He'd left explicit instructions that the photographic survey aircraft, the key to the most important geographic outcomes of the expedition, should not be loaded until he and James Robertson, the aircraft mechanic, were on hand to supervise the rigging. Finn Ronnie, feeling the time pressure, ignored this injunction from the man he placed in sole charge of the aviation program and ordered the aircraft craned aboard. The lifting lugs applied were not rated for the load and sheared off as the crane had the aircraft at height and beginning its traverse over the ship's bullocks. The Beechcraft came to rest upside down on the wharf, bent beyond repair by the drop. A dockyard worker narrowly avoided a twin-engine transport aircraft to the head, and the citizens of Beaumont, meandering about the wreckage and the associated petrol leaks from the ruptured fuel tanks, and many of them sporting lit cigarettes, narrowly avoided mass immolation. On arriving dockside, Darlington lost his shit, as you would. He put a lot of time and a huge effort into preparing the Beechcraft to Antarctic Aerial Survey spec, and anticipated knocking all previous aerial survey efforts in the south into a cocked hat with it. With just days to go before departure, his red and orange pride and joy lay on its broken back, returning to its status as recycled aluminium in waiting. Darlington upbraided Ronnie in public for the demarcation transgression and its ruinous outcome. A proud man, 
Ronnie took this dressing down in front of all and sundry extremely badly. And while Ronnie reaffirmed his intention to stay out of Darlington's management of the aviation program, and Darlington reaffirmed his loyalty to the leader, the relationship between the two never fully recovered. At least Ronnie couldn't punish Darlington in the time-honoured Norwegian manner applied by Amundsen when Hjalmar Johansson upbraided him over breakfast and the aborted first attempt on the pole from Framheim. At least not openly. A wrecking truck arrived to remove the wreckage, while Harry Darlington, likely swearing a lot, though there's no written record confirming this, stripped the aircraft of the Trimetrigon system and all other winterising equipment, unsure as to whether Ronnie had enough cachet in hand to cajole a second such airframe out of the USAAF. Ronnie did his utmost on that front, and going up the Army Air Force chain of command as far as General Curtis LeMay in his attempt to make good on the pile of scrap metal he left in his wake. Either way, the ship couldn't wait. Lassiter and Adams would fly any replacement aircraft south to join the ship in Panama, or not, as the case may be. And that wasn't the end of Ronnie's troubles in these final Beaumont days. The ship wasn't insured. A previous assumption ran that allowing the wooden hulled tug to freeze into Marguerite Bay for the winter and seeing how it fared constituted an experiment, though it was really a necessity this late in the season, and therefore nulled the insurance concerned as the ship was still on naval service. This turned out not to be the case, and the Ronnies had to think fast on their feet and talk quick on their hands those phrases are equivalent, I'm sure, to get the Maritime Commission to take responsibility for any damages, largely off the back of the lobbying of a sympathetic Texan Senator, J.M. Coombs. An army representative visited the dock and departed in dudgeon, claiming never to have seen anything so badly organised as Ronnie's expedition, intending to pull the pin on army support. Finn and Jackie Ronnie ramped up their local public speaker roster and radio interview schedule to try to make good the money lost with the army contracts this visit cost them. Signed photographs of Finn Ronnie in his polar kit announced donors as honorary members of the expedition. On a side note, if anyone wants a signed picture of me in the emergency egress hole or in a zodiac or in any of the more candid situations in which my likeness has been captured by the camera artist's medium in return for donations, that can be arranged. Local laundry owner, Louis, Jenny Darlington didn't provide a surname, already sufficiently enamoured of the expedition to take its members washing at no charge, offered to raise $10,000 for Finn Ronnie, who received this proffered assistance with alacrity and gratitude though that some of the materials Louis provided remained on the dock as the ship departed, might have made that gratitude seem less than 100% in retrospect. Ike Schlossbach surprised many fellow expeditioners with his willingness to muck in and shovel coal and load cargo as readily, and in some cases more readily, than his companions, though he took exception to people standing about photographing him at these tasks. His grumbling, recorded by Jenny Darlington, ran... Just like all expeditions, one guy works, seven take pictures. Dr. Eklund pulled out of the expedition, and with too little time to find a replacement senior scientist, the scientific body went south as a collection of individual potterers, rather than a united and coordinated team offering mutual support and a galvanised sense of purpose. 
The evening before the port of Beaumont threw off lines, Harry Darlington received permission for Jenny to sail as far south as Panama, from where Jackie and Jenny would fly back to New York. This delayed the newlywed separation by a few days, much to Jenny's delight. Large numbers of locals lined the docks as the port of Beaumont sailed out of the port of Beaumont. Finn Ronnie left Bill Laterty behind with the aerial photography gear to accompany Lassiter and Adams in delivering the replacement beechcraft to Panama. Unable to hand him a cash per diem and some extra for anticipated expedition expenses, Ronnie assured the mountaineer-come photographer that the expedition would see him right if he kept his receipts. Shortly after the ship left him on the dock, a telegram arrived to let Bill know that the USAAF would not supply a replacement beechcraft. Bill tried calling the State Department Collect, which is what reverse charges are called in the USA, but the department refused to accept the call, as did the War Department and the Navy Department. Bill spent 10 of his available $20 in phone calls to Washington before receiving an assurance from Representative J.M. Coombs that he would see what he could do to help get the expedition's raison d'etre restored. On the cusp of selling his camera equipment and cutting his losses, another telegram arrived. General Carl Spartz gave permission for the expedition to requisition another beechcraft, though he provided no details of from where or whom. Later he tried to join up with Lassiter and Adams, hoping he could reach Panama aboard whatever flight carried them south, when another telegram arrived forbidding his travelling in a military aircraft. Later, he called on his mother to wire him enough money to secure a seat on a civilian flight to New Orleans, but he couldn't fly on from there due to his not having a passport. Calling on the US Consul in the small hours of the morning to get the emergency paperwork sorted, based on the all-important telegram from General Spatz, Later, he finally rejoined the expedition in Cologne. Darlington and Later, he visited Albrook Field the United States Army Air Force presence along the canal. An officer assigned to fulfil General Spart's orders on site proffered one of the recently arrived Factory Fresh C-47s, the USAAF designation for the DC-3, an airframe with a long and continuing association with Sterling service in Antarctica. But already knowing the modifications necessary to match a Beechcraft C-45 to the Trimetrigon system and alert that the limited deck space available would not take the larger aircraft, Darlington selected the best turned out example of the latter airframe present at Albrook Field. The officer tried to demure because the Beechcraft Darlington selected was the personal transport of his commanding officer. Darlington would not be swayed, arguing the C-45 he selected was the only example present fitted with the icing boots, rubber leading edges on the wings and tail surfaces that could be inflated slightly to force ice that accumulated on those surfaces to fall away into the slipstream. This constituted a fallacious gambit, as the dry air over Antarctica prevents airframes experiencing icing under most flying conditions, but Darlington felt determined to take south this best possible specimen of C-45, and held to his disingenuous ploy. The General C-45 went aboard the port of Beaumont. Meanwhile, aboard the ship recently departed from the port of Beaumont, radio operator Kelsey kicked off an unofficial oceanography program involving throwing messages in bottles over the ship's side each day 
in hopes someone might find one and respond. Peterson rigged the cosmic ray equipment and future dog handlers got to know their charges and took care of the first litter of five puppies, Dr. McLean going over the gunnel to save one that fell overboard. Ike Schlossbach, never having sailed in the Merchant Marine, proposed the ship run as per naval routines and practices, immediately promoting McClary to XO. Finn Ronnie deemed McClary's proposed daily toolbox meeting redundant, seeing as everyone knew their job. So instead of naval efficiency, the ship ran with a sort of personnel bedlam that I struggled to read about without wincing. Scientists are great at science, but unless they're also mariners, but that didn't stop chuckleheads bugging the officer of the watch with suggestions and deductions, and generally being neither use nor ornament. Pete Peterson, standing awatch at the helm and engaged in vigorous dialogue with Andy Thompson, turned the ship in a full circle without noticing. Told off about the manoeuvre, the geologist made hurt fawn noises and whined about ungrateful officers belittling his best efforts to help, while turning the ship another full circle, leading to his being relieved of duty. The bridge debacle Jenny Darlington describes as the ship approached the Panama Canal in a fog sets me to tearing at my hair, but Ike Schlossbach weathered the inanities brought to his domain with an air of, what we need on this bridge is more advice, feigning ignorance of their position or of how to find their way, happily greeting each new bloviation from the Greek chorus of naifs with faux gratitude and an air of relief at this or that first time sailor having saved the expedition from maritime doom. A more patient skipper than I, that one-eyed mariner. Once in the canal, Finn Ronnie announced Jackie would stay on until Valparaiso, also granting Jenny Darlington the opportunity to remain aboard. Karen Ronnie Tupek, interviewed for Thomas Henderson's documentary Ice Eagles, maps her mother's extended voyage as stemming from Finn Ronnie's need for her sustained support in the final paperwork and planning still in hand during the transit, but I'm increasingly confident that Finn Ronnie saw the opportunity to host the first woman on the continent as the birdie and big ticket item that might give the expedition's outgoing copy greater public interest and is likely to leverage greater dividends on returning to the USA. The expedition otherwise lacked the human interest element that previous outings featured, such as the first flight to the pole or the first crossing of the continent, or those generated out of whole cloth such as Bird's sojourn at Bolling Advance Base. A woman wintering at Stonington Island combined a human interest story with the expertise and support of Jackie. Win-win for Finn. Throughout the remaining voyage, Harry Darlington, Bill Laterty and Jim Robertson worked to winterise the C-45 and install the Trimetricon array. The General's plushly appointed interior came out and in went long-range fuel tanks and the cameras. The de-icing boots that secured the airframe for the expedition were removed and replaced with metal leading edges to save weight, thereby increasing the aircraft's range. Ronnie ordered the new aircraft to receive the words Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition on the side. The other airframes were labelled American Antarctic Association Expedition and that's the name expedition members and press articles used in referring to the project, but the Ronnies appear to have arrived at the new epithet while in transit. Ego might play a role in such decisions, but I appreciate the change, as RARE is a far better acronym than the equivalent number of unpronounceable vowels.
The ship's funnel received the acronym and a motif of a penguin before a snowy mountain range. Looting took hold. The stores Sig Gutenko secured for the expedition comprised nutritionally apt but otherwise stolid fare, and the niceties, in short supply due to the funding shortfalls and the lack of expedition interest from potential frippery donors, started disappearing as people secured personal supplies of, of anything that helped break the monotony of the galley's output. Someone unscrewed the hinges of the door leading to the stores, and a looting craze swept through the personnel. Candy disappeared first, to the dismay of those slated to head out on trail parties, chocolate rations standing as the only culinary reprieve from pemmican and hardtack. But even foods as mundane in home life as cornflakes became prized. Sig Gutenko, hoping to replicate the notoriety of Richard Bird's milk heifers at Little America too, took hens and a rooster south, expecting to keep the expedition in eggs through the winter, or at least generate a scientific paper on the matter of keeping poultry at high latitudes. Looting stymied his scientific program, as all the eggs generated in his attempt to breed up his flock got pinched and eaten before any hatched. Finn Ronnie issued standing orders and memoranda, forbidding and condemning the looting respectively, but his entreaties fell on deaf ears his leadership unable to break the feedback loop, the looting ramping up to ever more desperate measures for ever less desirable treats as supplies ran out. Once the stores of niceties ran out, the looters turned to looting each other's stashes, finding delight and despair in turn as an individual's personal supplies came and went. Some saw it as a light-hearted distraction during the voyage, but those who knew the long dark felt disquiet at such a breakdown in expedition cohesion so early in the piece. Jenny and Jackie, quite friendly at this stage of proceedings, assured one another that it would all come right once the ship reached Stonington Island, but at this distance from the events it appears the looting and Finn Ronnie's inability to curtail it are an expression of deeper-seated tensions and disquiet in the expedition. Distemper killed half the Huskies before the ship reached Chile. This dented the expedition's capacity for trail work precluding a lot of the geological ambitions, the ground control potential, and the emergency response the expedition could mount if something went wrong during one of the flights. The tight time schedule set by the Antarctic seasons precluded any attempt to source more huskies from reliable supplies, and the ship carried on, leaving doggy corpses in its wake. A three-hour stop in Valparaiso to water the ship and bunker fuel turned into a five-and-a-half-day debacle, but that's where we'll leave the rare, because I'm switching back to trying to cover concurrent projects in parallel, though this time I'm keeping the expeditions separated into their own episodes. The FIDs need some attention to help make sense of the next chapter in the rare story, and I'm already overdue in giving Argentine and Chilean interests in Antarctica an update. I'm still working on my Spanish so I can read the books. Sending love this episode to my uncle-in-law, Roger. He and his wife Penny were the first members of my wife's extended family I met during my first trip to the USA, and they hosted me, and eventually my family, on many subsequent occasions. While I met him in my twenties, he's one of three people I look to as my role model for a good husband and father. <laughs>